We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Welcome to History Creeps. I'm trying to sound like that guy. He sounds they sound so dramatic back then. We don't have anything like that anymore in our radio programs. Uh, welcome to episode. What episode is this? Fifty four. Close. Very close. Very close. I think we're episode four. Episode four of History Creeps. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Johnny Townsend, and with me, as always, this is Chris Chavez. And today we're going to talk about the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. And how it, quote, unquote, panicked America. Yeah, we're going to get into that. I mean, did it really panic America? I mean, I'm sure, well, we're going to get into it. We don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. You got to listen. Was a countrywide case of telephone? The game yeah. telephone? <laughs> That's kind of what it seems like. Um, you know, you got to realize this is during the time of radio. This is when radio was huge. So there was no satellite TV. Nope. No satellite TV, no no cable TV. What about CNN? No, it was CN. No, there was none of it. It didn't exist. The only thing that existed was CBS. CBS. And even then, they only played stuff for old people. Like Two and a Half Men. Yeah, <laughs> Two and a Half Men started as a radio program <laughs> in the nineteen thirties. <laughs> the little the half man wasn't even a half man yet. Yeah, it was like two and one thirds. <laughs> Oh, man. 1938, to be exact, right? We're about to hit 40, the 1940s. Yeah. So this is a time of of great friction in America as it is, just with everything that had been going on, really. In the world, really. Uh, oh, yeah, especially the world. We're on the brink of World War II. Yeah, World War One had, hadn't ended not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, World War Two. Was I think it's technically already it already begun, but we just weren't in it yet. Uh, it was close. I think it's it, it, technically it was when Hitler invaded Poland in thirty nine, but thirty eight, thirty seven, and thirty eight. There was a lot of build up. He was doing a lot of um, a lot of bellowing and and puffing of hot air over in Europe, and the country started to uh, take notice that this guy was amassing an army, and he kept claiming he wanted specific lands for himself and his country, and uh, he was making a lot of threats. So, yeah, it was a time of great peril, if you will. You realize that if, <laughs> that if like, Hitler was alive today, because, you know, he's pretty much just a bully. That's what he was. He was a bully. Exactly. He would be doing all this online. <laughs> <laughs> he would. He yeah, would. He'd be one of those trolls. <laughs> he'd be trolling all the all the, ma- the major websites. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so this this radio play took place in October 30th of 1938, 
And um, I think it's always important to think about this, the mindset in like where people were in that time, you know, and, and may think of maybe the years or the couple of years leading up to it and why people thought the way they did and where they were. Um, like you said, radio was the main, the main uh, entertainment. TV wasn't a thing. I mean, there was movie theaters. Right. Uh, yeah. But you couldn't have a movie theater in your home. So for your entertainment, you know, you'd have your dinner in the evening and then after dinner, you'd turn on the radio. Hollywood was a was kind of new then. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, radio was literally in, I think I saw somewhere like 80% of all households at that time. Yeah, for sure. Um, I saw something about having just come out of the Great Depression, um, that there were people who gave up telephones but made sure to purchase radios. Because uh, that was their main source of news. Like we said earlier, you know, there's no CNN, there's no 24-hour news cycle. So you had your entertainment and your news. They were getting reports from across the ocean of Hitler's rise and his threats and, you know, um, all these things that were going on, the Munich crisis. And uh, like I said, they were coming out of a depression. The stock market crashed. Banks were failing. Um, radio was a source of not only entertainment but news and a lot of times the news was like doomsday news, you know, like everything seemed bleak. Yeah, that seems very different from today. <laughs> That's sarcasm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little rough there. Um, one of the things I think was that made this extremely like impactful at the time as well. This radio play that supposedly panicked the country. Um, like you said, you're going to get into. But one of the things that really got to them was... Uh, the idea of fear because you're listening to all these things on the radio and you know have you ever heard of the idea how like they said you can control the masses with fear oh yeah for sure and you also got to realize like we said this is radio you're only hearing these things you're not actually seeing them oh, exactly. so you hear this stuff and your mind starts thinking of what it looks like yeah it, you know what it's like it's like uh reading or uh, reading a book or seeing a movie or listening to an audio player or seeing a movie you know, yeah, it's exactly yeah. It's that's a good comparison. I mean, your mind. That's why to me, like some of the scarier movies are the ones that make you think things instead of actually oh. showing them to you. Yeah, where you your just mind hear will always think the worst. Yeah, the movies where you just hear the sounds when it's completely dark and all you hear are the sounds. It's the worst. Oh yeah, for sure. I think that's what I, the first time I saw uh, Blair Witch Project in the theater when it was released. I think that was why it was creepier than after the fact when you could really look back on it and be like, that's actually kind of a stomach turning, you know, the camera work is a little horrible, but when you're in the theater in the dark and the sounds are all around you um, and a lot of the movies completely dark and all you hear the giggling of little kids and weird noises, you know, uh, like you said, it's the creepiest thing is to hear it and have your mind make up what's out there than to actually see it and see it's not so bad. The Blair Witch is a good example of how this whole War of the Worlds thing still kind of happens, even you know in our recent times. Ever they build that movie as a real true thing that happened. Of course, we know that they, you know, they did the Hollywood thing with it. It wasn't exactly what they said, but at the time when they were promoting the film, they promoted it as this was just they found this camera in the woods, and this is what actually happened. And they're just showing it to us. Yeah, and yeah, and a lot of people believed it. I mean. A lot, a lot. I mean, I remember when that movie came out, everybody was like, you have to see what happened to these people. <laughs> I remember a lot of people believed it, too. It was pretty funny, actually. Um, yeah, but so and then like you, that's a good comparison, actually, to say that that Blair Witch is almost a modern day version of the War of the Worlds in 1938. 
Um, well, I, I'll get into it when I start talking about the actual program, but we're no better today than they were then. We want to think we are, but I mean, how many oh, yeah. times do we just kind of hear something and then we jump on it without actually knowing everything about it? Oh, the thing that kills me worse is when you're on Facebook or, or one of these social media sites and someone posts uh, an article or something and it's it's not it's wrong. It's completely wrong. Like you go on Snopes and find out it's it's false. But the thing that kills me is you're posting it online which means you have access to other means of research to check and make sure what you're posting is tr- correct. You know, if, if I say one more time that I need to repost something on Facebook so they don't start charging me for using Facebook, I'm going to scream. Well, hold on. You have to copy and paste. You can't share. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is that going to do? You know what I mean? It, it drives me nuts. It totally drives me nuts. And I don't know. Um, when you have Google available to you, you have Snopes available to you. Available to you, it's no, there's no reason for it anymore. But in 1938, you don't have anything like that. All you have is radio programs that you enjoy, and all of a sudden, news break comes in, and you know, wars on on the horizon, or um, you know, the stock market's barely making its way back up again. People are still struggling. People are still losing jobs. The bank is, you know, failing you. Uh, it was a lot, a lot, of, a lot going on at that time. I think a lot of people don't realize that the Great Depression, how bad it was. I mean, it was horrible. There were lines just to get bread, for one. And on top of that, the only reason that we really even got out of it was because we had another war. Yeah, exactly. It's true. It was. It was. It was almost like that was the only way to get us out of it. They had to generate, almost had to generate a, a reason to get there, and the only reason to to get somebody behind you. And then we, this is when you get into conspiracy theories and, and politics. But like, honestly, the only reason you can get a lot of people behind you and to support you is because they're afraid. They're afraid of the big bad guy out in Europe coming to take our land over. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, for sure. So listening to radio programs that to them, it was very, um, it's dramatic. It's dramatic to sit there listening to music where you're calm and relaxing. And all of a sudden it cuts out. There's a pause of air and then we interrupt this program, you know, and you're like, uh, what's going on? And it's a jarring thing. Um, there was a, the bio, a biographer of Orson Welles. Uh, I was going to read this quote because he he nailed it right on the head. He goes, people were on edge uh, for the entire month prior to the war of the world's radio. Uh, the, the radio had kept the American public alert to the ominous happenings throughout the world. The Munich crisis was at its height for the first time in history. The public could tune into their radios every night and hear boot by boot, accusation by accusation, threat by threat, the rumblings that seemed inevitably leading to a world war. People like they were saying like they had their emotions played on for for days and days and days and and weeks leading up to an evening of entertainment in which one of these these programs was a play, you know, War of the Worlds. Yeah, I mean, it's. It's just, we want to say that we're better now, like I said before, but it, we're so, we can be, we can be led, I guess is a good way to put it. I don't want to say, I don't want to get into the whole conspiracy thing either, because I, honestly, I find most of them really funny. Yeah. But it's just that, you know, it is really obvious how much we can really be sheep. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's easy. It's easier to go with the flock than to stand on your own and say everyone else is wrong. Because then yeah. they look at you like you're the weirdo. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Which I think is what made Orson Welles kind of stand out. Is he kind of 
from everything I've looked at, he kind of marched to the beat of his own drum. Which is amazing. Like, the more I re- – I got to tell you, like, uh, I was a fan of War of the Worlds, the book, as a kid, H.G. Wells. And I was a fan – and we got we should mention, too, H.G. Uh, Wells and Orson Wells, there's no relation. Um, right, yeah. That's important. There's going to be a lot of Wells talking here. So we're going to have to say Wells and Wells with an E because uh, yep. Orson Wells was the Wells with an E. Um, no, but uh, what was I saying? Um, I and then after this, we're going to talk about the Orca whales. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like uh, the idea that, that he did this play, you know, I used to love the book. And um, it's it's one of my favorite books, honestly, that I've ever read. The first time I ever heard about the radio play being anything, it was actually Halloween. And I, I believe I was like maybe eight or nine. And I was at a friend's house um, after trick or treating, and there was a TV show on, and it was this 1970s movie that was, um, I think it was a remake of one that they had done before, but it was a 70s movie about the night America panicked, and it was the you know a, a movie about Orson Welles doing the play in America freaking out, and I remember sitting there thinking this is crazy. Then I found out like this was real, like a dude really did do a play, and. And I'd always been interested, but I'd never really looked into Orson Welles in depth. And when you say like he was a really interesting guy, went to the beat of his own drum, like it wasn't until we did a lot of research for this episode that I've really realized how intriguing and interesting the guy is. I like I want to learn more about him. I think I'm going to start like really researching more of his life because he does. He seems to be a really intriguing guy. He's really smart, too. He knew. I mean, we'll get to this eventually, but he knew that no matter what the he could play with the aftermath of what happened oh, and use yeah. it to his advantage. Oh, yeah. Uh, did you ever see the video of his press conference the day after? Yeah, for sure. You, <laughs> you see the guy's face and just the way he's he's got that innocent, like, it's like that little schoolboy that you know is, is a little devil, right? But, yeah. like, when the teachers are around, all of a sudden he's a sweet angel and he's, like, batting his eyelids. Oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. So-and-so. The dude I was no literally idea. an actor. He was literally an actor. It was, it's amazing. I absolutely love that performance. When you That's see... That's why anytime, you know, anytime we have actors nowadays who have to apologize for things, I'm not saying they never don't mean it, but, you know, they're <laughs> actors. <laughs> they're doing the Orson. They're pulling an Orson Welles. Yeah. Uh, and I, I absolutely love his performance. I do. I, I look at that and I just think to myself, look at the way he looks at these reporters and this, like, this innocence of, like, well, I had no. Yeah, we'll definitely get because I actually have audio footage of him uh, during that press conference. We'll definitely get to it. Um, let's see. Well, well, like you were saying, though, I mean, it's. This is a time when all of these things in the world were happening and people were hearing about it on their radios. Yeah. Um, so constantly you're being hit left and right with uh, what was going on in Europe, what Hitler was doing. Exactly. Uh, you're being hit with uh, major disasters like the Hindenburg, for example. Yeah, Hindenburg was in 37, a year before this play. Um, and it's, it's a good example, though, of the impact of listening to a live recording of somebody reporting and then reacting in an emergency situation and the way it sounds and the way it hits you um you can understand when people after have having dealt with this for you know a year the thing going on in europe when they're listening to a radio play and there's an uh, a reporter on the scene again i'm doing air quotes but you can't see me on a uh, on a radio on an audio show um but when but he i can ri- hear them in my heart <laughs> you can hear the <laughs> as yeah. i air quote uh yeah but when you <laughs> air quotes like you're in a kung fu film, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and what I'm doing also is as I'm speaking, my lips aren't matching the movement of my speaking. Um, That's talent. <laughs> no, you but, know, you say that, but that does remind me. This just proves how big radio was back then. They even did their comedies on the radio. And I saw in some documentary that one of the top programs was a guy with his dummy. Yeah. On the radio. <laughs> yeah, it was um, the Charlie McCarthy ventriloquist act. Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. And the name of the show was The Chase and Sanborn Hours. It's actually the most popular show at the time. And that's the point. He's playing with a dummy and he's doing both voices, yet you can't see. Yeah. He didn't have to. He didn't even have to do the. He could just be there by himself. But he didn't even need the dummy. <laughs> exactly. But um, so what I was saying is, was, was the Hindenburg disaster. The radio. When you're listening to it, you can feel that. So when you hear the the actor pull it off, um, it's 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 eerie. It make it makes you understand why people accepted it as being true. Uh, I actually have a clip of the Hindenburg disaster. Let me go ahead and play it. And I want like seriously listen to this dude, like how his voice just. It's it's insane the amount of emotion that comes out of it as he witnesses it with his own eyes. Uh, here we go. It's starting to rain again. It's, the rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It bursts into flames. It bursts into flames and it's falling. It's crazy. Watch it. Get it started. Get it started. It's crazy and it's crazy. It's crazy. Terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning fast, and all the folks between that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's 20, oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. It, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the morning mass of the humanity, and all the fans are just screaming around it. I don't do it. I can't even talk to people. There's fans around there. It's, 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 uh, oh, I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, it's just like there are massive smoking wreckage. And everybody can't hardly breathe and talk and scream. Lady, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it. Isn't that well, crazy? I mean, just the emotion in his voice. I mean, that that's an iconic radio broadcast, too. How many times do you hear people say, oh, the humanity? Yeah, and that's, what that's where that came from. Yeah, they're referencing that. And it is. It's it's powerful when you listen to that. Now, imagine, like, it's so hard for our generations to imagine, especially even younger generations having grown up with the Internet and technology. It's so hard to imagine not seeing things and just having to use your ears for your imagination night after night after night. And, and we're so we're, – we're, we're already at a point where if anything – happens no matter how real it may be our first audio is always fake it's easy to fake yeah exactly exactly that could have been a, a fake audio unfortunately yeah. it wasn't um but the impact that that must have to hear yeah people lost their lives during that yeah and that's what he's witnessing and that's why like he becomes overcome with emotion he can't even keep it together to report correctly um and he ends up what ends up happening at the end of the clip he ends up stepping in out of the like into the hangar and out of off the tarmac because of the smoke was too thick he was breathing it in and couldn't speak and then from inside he's gathered himself slightly but he's still super emotional and and trying to and basically he he just narrates everything he's seeing and he's doing his best to tell you exactly how it looks and that's got to be like the worst thing to try to you know, go out of your way to describe something graphically as it's like going on in front of you. And it's, uh, it's terrible. It's a, it's like a disaster, but it's also important. 
in towards going towards the War of the Worlds broadcast because exactly. it was influential hugely to it. Yeah, they're um one of the what was it you were telling me about one of the actors? Well, it just to set the scene, you know, Orson Welles at this time he was already kind of a known person. Uh, people knew who he was. He did a lot of plays. He directed a lot of plays. He wrote a lot of plays, and he was on. I think I saw as many as twenty five radio programs a week. That's insane. Like one of the big, one of the biggest ones he was on was called The Shadow. That's how most people oh, knew him. That's right. I forgot that he was he was actually The Shadow um, in the old radio plays. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, he was known even back then before War of the Worlds as being this kind of innovative guy who took chances and was really creative kind of person. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Uh, the original script, um, they tried to decide what they wanted to do, I think, on the radio for. And War of the Worlds came up. Yeah. I had actually heard somewhere that somebody actually thought that they assumed that he actually never even read the book. Yeah. yeah. Now, I don't know if he did or not. I don't know. Because I guess his reaction was so old, like this when they when they mentioned it, he was so a little over the top kind of. He was like, "Oh, I absolutely love that, you know? Yes, do that one kind of a thing." And they <laughs> thought, "Oh God, he's he's mocking me. Yeah. He's even read the thing." So so they so they had a guy write it or kind of adapt it. Well, they bought the rights to it for yeah. one, so they did it legally, and then they had a guy kind of write it. The first script, though, from all what I've understood, Orson Welles did not like. It was bland. He said, um, "Yeah." Yeah, and it was originally you said he adapted is because the original book takes place in England, and so he wanted it to take place in America, so the American audience could, um, you know, relate to it. Because, you know, when you're doing a play, you're doing any kind of movie, you you want the the audience to have some sort of connection so that they they enjoy it. You know what I mean? And that was his his idea: make them relate to it by setting it in America and and, and setting it in real towns. Now, did you hear how they decided on the place that this was going to take place in? No, how's that? The guy who, I wish I could remember his name, the guy who he got to write it, when he was rewriting it, he literally stopped at his store, bought a map, and just randomly picked a place on the map. <laughs> and it just happened to be Grover's Mill, New Jersey. That's amazing. And I actually think, I've, I'd heard somewhere that uh, Grover's Mill, New Jersey was probably the most famous place to be famous for a historic event that never actually happened. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. Which I thought was pretty cool. That is actually really cool. It's so funny how like the most random and trivial things speak can you know you never know what's going to happen with it. That's funny. Yeah. So and you also got to realize, like I said, Wells was a really busy guy. Mm -hmm. He I mean he was on twenty five radio programs on top of everything else. So they said that when he would get these scripts, it'd be almost like last minute kind of thing. Oh yeah, his approval of them. I saw that. I read that too. That he'd get these things and. You know, they're say they're set to record for Friday or, or to do the play on Friday, and they've gotten a uh, they got the script a, a few weeks beforehand, and they've already gotten the actors. They got them all together. They did all their rehearsals without Orson, obviously, and then it would be like last minute he'd get it to look at it and say, "All right, let's go," and they do a, a quick run through or something like that. Yeah, and, and, he, it, and he would hate it. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing for War of the Worlds, he absolutely hated it, and to like at the last second to say you hate it and have to rewrite it and get everyone else on board again, it, that was almost like career but suicide. That, that was his genius, though. Mm -hmm. He knew that if they went with the original version, it would not have as much of an impact as if they did it the way that he decided on. Yeah. So yeah. he decided that they should do it as a lot like it's a live broadcast happening right now. Yeah, and he he went with the. I mean, he understood the impact that that the me the medium had when you heard somebody break in. You know, he knew that impact because he had heard 
these radio, these news blasts before, and he had felt it. And I, I think I'd seen something where he'd heard a radio play um, that had utilized that that idea, that that breaking in news thing. And when he'd heard that play, he thought this is extremely effective, and he wanted to use it at some time. And that's when he decided to was this play. Yeah, I mean, it was it was pure genius to do it that way. It really was. And what really helped the whole you know presentation of it was there were no commercials during this thing. Right. There was the only one, the one time aside from almost completely towards the end of the recording, there's one time at the opening where he actually says this is a radio play done by the Mercury Broadcast or the Mercury Theater. Um, Which is key. They actually said that then and they said it at the end that, hey, this isn't real. (laughs) Yeah. But at the opening, he says it um, right after reading from some of H.G. Wells or right maybe right before, right after reading. Well, we used the clip at the beginning of the show and that's the beginning of the radio play basically um but yes um he was how old was he when he did this he was young yeah he wasn't old at all i actually don't know how old he was but i mean he had to be what 20s oh 23 yeah wow. i mean easily 20s so he's and, 23 when he does this and at 23 he's an already established actor and highly regarded theater director oh yeah he was sought after uh and like we said radio was the number one a source of entertainment and news then mm-hmm. so to be big in radio was to be big you know like you'd be big on tv now we'd be big back then wouldn't we oh we'd be humongous we'd man. have uh our podcast would be the number one in the country i think oh that's good thinking i like how you think <laughs> i don't know how true it is i don't know which podcast but one of our podcasts would be yeah, one <laughs> that's for sure it's one of them so it's it's really key to realize that this thing is played up as it's real, besides yeah. the thing at the beginning and the thing at the end. Yeah. Like, it's really happening. They would break in with a news reporter, mm-hmm. and he would be doing like the guy did with during the Hindenburg and talk about what was happening before him. Exactly. They would, uh, I, I believe the play starts out with saying, it sounds sounds like music, and, it's, and that's what happened at the time. Uh, it was a lot of um, big band orchestras that would play in these studios for your entertainment. You'd sit at home, and that's what you'd listen to when you ate, finished eating dinner, or you'd be listening to the guy and his ventriloquist that you couldn't see, or his dummy. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they said that a lot of times after the, during that comedy show, they would break for a musical performance. And it was actually a singer or something in, in the uh, studio. And there were many listeners who didn't want to listen to the singer. They would start, you know, channel surfing, basically, the way you do on TV. You They, they would spin the knob on their radio and look for something else to listen to. And yeah, that, for sure. And that's when they came across the orchestral music playing on Mercury Theater's play, which gets broken in out of nowhere it cuts it it fades out cuts out and then you get this that familiar like news break like part of the interruption kind of a thing um you want to listen to the first one actually yeah let's hit it yeah this is how this one the first interruption app this is music's playing all of a sudden it cuts out this is what you're hearing on the radio next ladies and gentlemen we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the intercontinental radio news At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello 
playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. <laughs> and that's what they well, do. Now, I like how he says dance music. <laughs> <laughs> and they would do it. They'd throw it to yeah. another, it'd be at a hotel, like across town, and that's where the radio would pick up the broadcast from. And music We're sorry to interrupt your program of rap music. <laughs> <laughs> Jay-Z will have to sit this one out. Uh, it's, and also at the time, they used Martians, which this was, you know, in the 1938. So this is well before we were on the moon. Mm-hmm. This is well before any of that. So that whole thing, even though it still is now to this day, really, but space was even more so back then, something that we knew very little about. Right. Even though H.G. Wells wrote it um, earlier than, than the radio play, still, it, even at that time, was even less known. And I remember I was reading something about how, Another thing that that factored into the the real fear, the realist realism behind it was that back then Americans didn't have as much light pollution as we do now. So you could go out in your backyard, look up to the sky and see that vast amount of stars that you see, you know, usually out in countrysides. And a lot of times you could see Mars. So Mars was a very real presence in the sky. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of things I think really factored into this and you also you got to realize that during this broadcast, they're playing it so real <clears throat> to a point where Wells was like a genius director almost. Like mm-hmm. you see a guy directing a band, and he would tell him when one part would go, and the other part would stop. But the key to his directing was the pauses. Oh yeah, that was huge. And um, he was—I don't know. Have you seen pictures of him in the during this recording in the middle? Oh of the yeah, studio? like he's like he's a he's like a master at the controls. Like he's like a conductor, like a symphony conductor. Arms in the air, his high, hair's all disheveled, you know, sleeves rolled. And up. he would hold these pauses for like a a weird amount of time. Oh yeah, that's coming up. Um, there's one other one I wanted to play first. This illustrated base. This there's a clip that of the second news break that came right after after uh, they talked to. What happens is the music plays a little bit, then they come back and talk to somebody at an observatory, and he says what he sees on the face of Mars, and then there was, and it was shooting debris out towards Earth, and then it goes back to music for a while. Then there's a second break, and this is where it becomes super real because not only had they mentioned this scientist in Princeton, now they talk about Grover's Mill, um, apparently easily picked out of a, a map um, by the writer. But yeah, so this is this one is I thought it was kind of cool to hear. Check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morris of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m. a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched the special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millette and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. More dance music. Yeah, a program of dance music. <laughs> as, as meteorites are crashing to Earth yeah. and coming at And Carl Phillips is key to this now. Uh, he became the most famous fake person to die 
<laughs> yeah, which is amazing. Um, and when you talk, when you were talking about Orson Welles's pause and the effectiveness of it, it actually comes in on the next clip. The next clip is Carl Phillips on the scene. Yeah, I want to set this up a little yeah. bit. Like this is what Carl I wanted Phillips you to talk is about. The, yeah. Is the reporter on the scene, and that's the guy's name. Now, I'd heard and read a lot of things where people were upset that Carl Phillips would die, and they called him a hero. <laughs> this is before they realized it was fake. Because he sacrificed himself to try to help people and give them the real information that they needed to know to save themselves. He stayed on the scene as yeah. chaos ensued. <laughs> um, this was the guy you were talking about, uh, the actor, um, and how he used the Hindenburg audio to help him get into the role of what he was going to do for this, this clip here. Um, and like I said before, and this is key, his Orson Welles would do these pauses that would so much add to the drama of the whole situation. Oh yeah, for sure. This guy that plays this part, uh, got the recording of Hindenburg, listened to it over and over and over so that he can have that sense of urgency in his voice. And, um, I'm not gonna give. I'm gonna play this clip, but I'm gonna let when that pause kicks in. I'll talk after when that cl the pause is the natural end, because uh, I stop it before he starts talking again. Um, okay. But wait till you see just this pause is just so like you would be uncomfortable with it. We already know how I am with pause. <laughs> All right, this is so. Here's what was his name again? Uh, the actor or the 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 fake reporter? Carl Phillips. Here's Carl Phillips on the scene. Ladies and gentlemen, my on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! Oh, the whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. And then it kicks in again. And look how perfect that was. I mean, just even at the very beginning when he's... When Carl Phillips is on the air, he goes, hey, hey, am I on? I know. I love that. It's such a sweet touch because he starts to talk and then he says it because he starts to oh, wait. Am I on? OK, yeah, yeah that's that's perfect. And they didn't end it at a point where you thought that would be a natural ending of a sentence. Yeah. He put the pause in the middle of him saying a sentence. Yeah, they cut his mic off right in the middle of him saying the word right. So it's just right. And Orson's got his hands in the air and he's not allowing anyone to breathe. Everyone has to hold their breath. And at this point, you know, this is where people are really starting to freak out. <laughs> yeah, so you hear that break, and then there's this dead silence. And you're like, wait, what happened to our radio? And, the, and your first instinct is to look and see if there's a glow still coming from it and make sure there's still power. Yeah. Well, on top of that, they said a little bit after 8 o'clock, police stations, newspapers, and hospitals started getting and 
a crazy amount of calls right. come into them. And that was because this is what they heard right after that pause. After that long pause, the very next thing they heard was this. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. And when they do return, the they go so far as they see, say they see charred bodies, the charred body of uh, of the reporter. Um, oh, poor Carl. Carl. Uh, Carl Phillips sounds just like a reporter too, doesn't it? Carl Phillips. <laughs> a reporter's name. It's such a perfect name. Let's uh, go to record, let's go to Carl Phillips in the field. Carl. And I'm that, dead, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm feeling a little burnt out. <laughs> How would you like me, extra crispy? <laughs> but uh, well done. But yeah, you're like you said, people couldn't believe what they were hearing. Um, well, they wanted to see if they're. If they had relatives in the area, if they yeah. were okay, uh, they wanted to warn their friends and stuff that live in the area yeah, to get them caught. out of there. Yeah, people would answer their phones and say, uh, people living in Groves, Grover's Mill would, would answer their phones to their relatives, hysterical, and they'd say, nothing's going on. Everything's fine. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? They said on the news, you know, the radio said that you're burning alive. Um, nah. Now, here's, now, during the broadcast, you know, we're going to get to what the media kind of did, but yeah, there yeah. were some things that did really happen during Yeah, it. exactly. They said in, uh, I might be pronouncing this wrong, but Bergenfield, New Jersey, mm-hmm. they said at least 20 families turned up at a police station and they all had all their belongings packed up in their car <laughs> with all their stuff. There were, I guess hoping the police would save them. <laughs> there were a lot of um, phone calls to police departments and police departments had to try to allay a lot of fears. Well, most of them didn't even know what was happening. They had no idea what these people yeah. were talking about. And then they'd tune to the radio station and say, come on, it's obviously a play because of just how fantastic it sounded. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at, in Indianapolis, at some church, this woman went crazy and rushed to pulpit, started screaming about the world was ending and the Martians were coming. Did she really? Yes. <laughs> that is amazing. Well, but I did My favorite one, this is my absolute favorite one, in Concrete, Washington, at the worst timing possible that could ever possibly happen, <laughs> that town had a power added outage I randomly during I the broadcast. That. I saw that, and it was like almost almost in sync for when everything happened. Yeah, they uh, said it drove people up to the mountains. They were so freaked out about it. <laughs> that's <laughs> but to amazing. be fair, if I was listening to something like that, and all of a sudden the power went out, I would kind of freak out a little bit too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's kind of hard to, to write off as a radio play when it coincides. And to bring it back to the Hitler and the World War thing, yeah, you know they'd been hearing about Hitler on the radio all the time and all these crazy speeches he would give. Yeah. So some people ran out in the streets saying the Germans were there. They would they wouldn't say Martians. They would say Germans. It's the Germans. Yeah, I was gonna say that that um that was actually one of the real fears. A lot of the real fears that people felt was that the war had come to America and that the Germans were invading and what they heard, cause they hadn't heard the buildup to Martians or anything happening on Mars. All they had heard was some music and all of a sudden this something has going on and there's attacking and some, it looked like something was coming to, to get them, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and do you know, do you have like the actual time of how long the play was? Uh, it's a little bit over an hour. Okay. Yeah. And you got to realize that they had a ton of actors to play these parts he had an orchestra in there with him too. That would, play, I guess, would play the big band parts. Yeah, he had. Um, actually, there was only ten actors uh, on the entire on the entire cast, uh, and twenty seven piece orchestra in the radio and him. And then there was a, a cast of like three or four guys in the control room. Um, yeah, 
Which were key because they had to keep the police out. <laughs> yeah. Police started showing up at the theater because of all the calls they had been getting. So they went in there, not because they wanted to say, hey, listen, you know, what's going on? What happened? They said, you need to go back on and tell people it's a play. Stop, you know, take a break. Tell them it's a play. And like you said, Orson Welles went to the beat of his own drum and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> not no, right away. Wouldn't. No. He continued <laughs> on for like another 15, 20 minutes of play before. Now, I don't know if you have this or not, but at the very end of the play, he comes on there and he says, uh, I wish I could remember the quote exactly, but he pretty much just says it's the same as like a Halloween, it was a Halloween prank. Yeah, I ha- actually have, um, I have his apology because that's the thing. He had to come out and hold a press conference and apologize. And at, originally he had no clue what the hell was going on. He, no, they, why would he? He knew what he was doing. He was having a play to him. I mean, they said it at the beginning of the show. And they said it at the ending of the show, so he just assumed everything was, you know, like it would normally be for something like that. I mean, why would he be need to apologize for anything? Yeah, he had heard they because the police were there asking him to to say that it was a play. He knew that there were some people who were a little upset and didn't realize it was a play, but he didn't realize what the media was going to say it was. And when he left the the station, um, when you hear this this thing, I don't know if I actually have that part in the clip because I took a lot of the main points of his his press conference and kind of put it together. But he does say how he didn't have time to hear anything. He left and went right to another play um, and then got three hours of sleep before, you know, CBS made him hold a press conference and apologize for what happened. <laughs> you know, And that's like how it goes today. Uh, you know, uh, an, an a celebrity will say something that maybe they don't mean or maybe they do mean. Um, and because, you don't know, because they're an actor. Yeah. And because it's a uh, because it's it's not a popular opinion, they're usually forced to apologize. And, they- and, I, and I, I do want to say before you play this clip of his apology, this apology and the newspapers the next day made him even more famous than he was before. Oh, this was it. This shot him to the roof. It really was because um Right before we get to it, too, it's 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 important to mention that at that time, newspapers um, were unhappy with the fact that radio was moving away from solely entertainment purposes and was starting to become a source of news for people in their homes. Uh, They didn't like that. And so when they when this happened and it was a false news report, it was like their field day. They could say, see, this is the dangers of radio. Look what it can do to an entire country. It can hold an entire country in the grips of fear. Uh, the news newspapers against radio was kind of like taxi cabs against Uber right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. they they hated them. <laughs> Which you can't blame them in a way. I mean that's their livelihood, I guess. Is yeah, the way to put it. So, so when you feel somebody's kind of coming on your turf, you want to try to protect it. Yeah, what they didn't realize what, uh, what they were doing though is they were popularizing uh, Wells, like you said. It made him even more popular. Um, and his his appearance. I mean, I'm telling you, if you get a chance to. Uh, Go on YouTube and and type in, you know, Orson Welles uh, news War of the Worlds news conference or press conference, and you just got to watch this guy's performance. The way he sits there and he addresses, and this it's it's this complete, like I said, schoolboy innocence. Like what we how how could we have been? You know, it's insane. Uh, here you want to I'll play some of his his uh, his apology here real quick. Okay. Um, of our shows were more intensely dramatic. I simply don't know. I can't imagine. I mean, I, uh, you must realize that I, when I left the broadcast last night, I went into 
a dress rehearsal for a play that's opening in two days, and I've had almost no sleep, and I, I know less about this than you do. I haven't read the papers. Except okay, the first thing you had listening in on this program would uh, know that there was no such thing as Martians. Well, it would seem to me unlikely that, uh, that, uh, the people of an invasion from Mars would find ready acceptance. I was, uh, frankly, terribly shocked to learn that, that, uh, it did. Do you want me to speak now? I'm sorry. Yeah. Of course, we are deeply shocked and deeply regretful about the results of uh, last night's broadcast. The date of the broadcast date of the broadcast was 1939, and it seemed, came rather as a great surprise to us that a story, the fine H.G. Wells classic fantasy, the original for so many succeeding comic strips and adventure stories and novels about a mythical invasion by monsters from the planet Mars should have had so profound an effect upon radio listeners. And you know he was eating it up too. Like he, as he knew the, they were trying to make him look bad and say this was this is obviously what radio can do. But he turned it around and look at how he plays it. He plays it like I can't. We had no idea it would have such profound. Like the words he uses even makes makes the the thing bigger than it really truly was. Well, not even just his words, but even during his apology, he knew. <laughs> When they use pauses, in I knew his you were going to say. The, I knew you were going to say pauses. I knew you were going to say that. And in, in in the apology, you're right. It's perfect. It is such a great performance. It's it's incredible. And I bet to some level, he he, he probably did feel kind of bad that some people did lose their mind. <laughs> but you know, at the same time, he's thinking, "This is going to shoot me through the roof." Yeah, he's like, "I've <laughs> made it, it. I've made it now, mom." And this is, you know what this, you know what this did? You know, the newspapers are like, we're going to take his guy down a peg. What they did instead was they got him a Hollywood deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then what does he do next? Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. <laughs> are you kidding? Is, you know, which is obviously one of the most well-loved classics of our time. I don't, I still, I think it, it's been AFI's number one movie of all time forever. I don't think it's been knocked off yet. Citizen yeah, Kane. Did, is, you, did is, you hear what his Hollywood deal was? No. What was it? He would write star and direct a, a movie every year one movie every year and he got i don't remember the amount that he got but for the time it was a crazy amount of money for it talk about job security that's insane yeah and it and this didn't even just help him it helped cbs too oh yeah because of this cbs got sponsors <laughs> oh yeah mercury theater was no longer just the mercury theater it was uh campbell soup sponsored yeah. him right because they figured if they could sell this martian attack they could sell some soup <laughs> Which is which is perfect thinking, really. I mean, it, you know, my hats off for the Campbells there for thinking outside the box there. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> um, this is it is such a great. I I love this story, but um, it does come out. It does come out after research, and a lot of people really looked into it. That the amount of panic that ensued and the the amount of people that were engulfed in it was greatly exaggerated. Um, not to say it didn't happen. There were still hundreds and hundreds of people across the country who fell for it, who panicked in some sort of way, whether it was having to pick up the phone and call family to just check on it or uh, 
you know, pack up their belongings and and try to head to the police. That's the funniest thing. You go to the police for what were they going to do in 1938? Yeah, let's say the Martians were real and they were blowing people up with heat rays. <laughs> what are the police going to do for you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but it's it shows you like once your mind is gripped in fear and then you're part of a mass of people that have that same mindset of fear that you're quick to believe things and you're quick to act on that belief your Um, mind will play tricks on you that's for sure i mean it does it to us to this day big time um and and you got to realize too i mean they got all kinds of letters oh yeah i saw people who like congratulated them on how great it was and how awesome it was and for a good scare and other people just outright outraged (laughs) like yeah like how could you do this yeah yeah you you don't know what you did to my family you didn't know what you did to my father his heart can't take it kind of a thing yeah yeah, and as you insane. said before about the media, CBS and Orson Welles both got sued a lot of times for this thing, but they never had to pay a single dime. And one of the main reasons was because the court said that the media greatly over-exaggerated the public's reaction to the actual play itself. Yeah, and again, that kind of goes back to the underlying politics for the newspaper trying to take out the radio. Uh, it was it was like almost like a witch hunt, for lack of a better term. Um, Actually, it's perfect callback. for Halloween. Uh, That's yeah. a callback. Listen to our previous episode, Salem Witch Trials. <laughs> Beautiful. Hey, we have a lot of callbacks in this one. We got H.G. Wells on the show. Oh. Uh, witches. Um, no, it was a, to me. This was. Oh, this is always going to be one of those things that I hold fondly in my heart. I love the idea of it. I love the idea that you know one radio play can capture the imaginations of people, but not just capture their imaginations, but drive them to act. You know, beyond you know, normal, normal procedures, things that they would normally do, you know, just because you got to realize there's no greater compliment for them at that time than the fact that some people really freaked out and yeah. legitimately left their homes. Yeah. That's like, um, the guy, when they made the, the exorcist in the seventies and people literally vomited in the theaters because it was too overwhelming for them. Yeah. There we go again with that. I'm so scared. <laughs> I've vomit thing. <laughs> A reaction I totally don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't either, but apparently it happens. Um, but yeah, Orson Welles had people at the edge of, of madness in certain spots. And I mean, that's there's still something to be said for that. Even though it wasn't as great as they said it was, it's still something to be said for the power of his his voice, his even his direction, the way he directed people to hold those pauses, the way he directed the guy to really get into that role of you know almost Hindenburg proportions. Yeah, and I, I do encourage anybody listening to this to find this on YouTube, the actual radio play, because it's on YouTube. Yeah. The whole thing is. And just listen to it. It's, it is incredible. It's an incredible piece of art. Easily, easily. I, um, I actually own the audio as well, so I listen to it here and there. But I know there's a lot of radio stations that play it on October 30th for like as, a, as a, an anniversary type of thing. Yeah. Uh, so it'd be kind of cool to actually listen to that live as well. I think I'll listen to it this Halloween season. I think it's what I'm going to do, too. I think I'm going to do it right now. Well, I guess we should end the show then. <laughs> um, was there anything else you wanted to cover on on this this great thing? Uh, there was one other thing I just wanted to point out that Orson Welles actually got to meet H.G. Wells. Oh, cool. Yeah, and they actually had a, a, a little conversation that was recorded, and uh, they referenced the, the play and um, – that quote you said where Wells said about dressing up as a as a ghost type of thing, he uses that here as well. And it's funny how, because um, this is two years later, so you're talking 1940. Um, two years later, the World War II is in full swing. America's not in it yet, 
and H.G. Wells references it, and he references how funny it is because he can't believe that the American people fell for it. He even says it in this in this meeting. He he questions it, like, did that really happen? Because he can't believe people are afraid of that. And he mentions how war is on the doorstep of England, and we have no clue what that's like over here. Um, yeah, we we really don't come off as the brightest group of people in this. <laughs> yeah, not at all. So I figured what I'll do is I'll I'll play that clip to end the show. Was there anything other points of interest or or pieces of knowledge that we should drop on the listeners that I forgot about? I think that's it. I think we should just plug real quick before you play that yeah. that uh, okay. thing. Uh, make sure you listen to my other podcast, Into Oblivion, with uh, me and Bobby. Do a pretty fun show over there. It's just a bunch of uh, goofy hijinks i guess would be the best way to put it i can attest uh, to it it's great i le- i mean i i don't think i've listened to an episode yet where i haven't laughed a lot yeah and here's your payment for saying that <laughs> and uh chris has a great show too back yeah. issues comic book podcast you know make sure you check it out uh we each actually did a great cool thing together recently it's a halloween special that both our shows did together yeah and make sure you listen to both of our shows because each one has its own ending. Yeah, it's great. We went, I, we went the clue route on this one. We're very it. proud of it. It was uh, really cool. And make sure you check me out on Instagram uh, at Johnnyism28. I also do artwork, so I post a lot of that on there. And I try to do jokes every once in a while. And uh, Johnnyism at Johnnyism on Twitter. And what about you, Chris? Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, Chavez 13 And the same on Instagram, Chavez 13 uh, yeah, you can find Back Issues Comic Book Podcast on Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, all the other podcasts. Uh, you, yeah, you can find all our podcasts on all those yeah, things. Just look us up on Google. You'll find us. Yeah. yeah um, for sure. Other than that, it was a great episode, man. I'm looking forward to our next one. I can't wait to hear this clip. I'm pretty excited about it. All right. We'll leave you guys with the meeting between Orson Welles and, and H.G. Wells. Here you go. Well, I've had... Uh, uh, a series of the most delightful experiences seemed to since I came to America. But the best thing that has happened so far is meeting my little namesake here, Orson. I find him the most delightful uh, uh, carrier. He carries my name and an extra E that I hope he'll drop sooner or later. <laughs> See no sense in it. And uh, I've uh, known his work before he made this sensational Halloween uh, spree. (laughs) Are you sure there was such a panic in America or wasn't it your Halloween fun? (laughs) I think that's the nicest thing that a a, a man from England could possibly say about the men from Mars. Mr. Hitler made a good deal of sport of it, you know, and sp- actually spoke of it in the great Munich speech, you know. Mm. And there were floats he, in Nazi parades. Not much showing. else to say. That's right. <laughs> there not much else to say. <clears throat> and it's supposed to show the corrupt condition and decadent uh, uh, state of affairs in democracies that the War of the Worlds went over as well as it did. I, I think it's very nice of Mr. Wells to say that uh, not only I didn't mean it, but the American people didn't mean it. Aye, that was our impression in England. We had articles about it, and people said, have you never heard of Halloween in America when everybody pretends to see ghosts? <laughs> mm. Well, the, uh, there was some excitement caused. I uh, really can't uh, belittle the amount that was caused, but I think that the people uh, got what, over it very quickly, don't what you? What kind of excitement? Mr. H.G. Wells wants to know if the excitement wasn't the same kind of excitement that we extract from 
uh, practical joke in which somebody puts a sheet over his head and says, boo, I don't think anybody believes that that individual is a ghost, but we do scream and yell and, and rush down the hall. Mm-hmm. And that's just about what happened. That's, that's a very excellent description. You, you aren't quite serious in America yet. <laughs> you haven't got the war right under your uh, chins. And the consequences you can still uh, play with ideas of terror and conflict.